Off the ball. Feels like we're in the running already. There's still half a season to go. I'm not sure how long you can maintain that sort of nervous energy, that emotional intensity. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Football on Off the Ball. With Sky. Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, Scottish Premiership, and much more live on Sky Sports. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk for your Sunday afternoon. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until seven. The headlines Liverpool added the FA Cup a 2 1 defeat away to Brighton. Carry beaten in Division 1 of the Allianz Football League at 13 points to 1 9 defeat to Donegal with Ross Common defeating Tyrone this afternoon. Wins as well for Meath and Clare in Division 2. Delighted to have in studio the former Republic of Ireland and St. Patrick's Athletic Manager Brian Kerr and the author Dermot Looney, who's written a book called Saints Rising about their early history of St. Pat's. Dermot and Brian, you're both very welcome. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Yeah, great to see you both. And uh, I really enjoyed reading the book over the last few days, uh, Dermot. And why did you write it, Dermot? There wasn't a history, John, on St. Pat's. So League of Ireland is very interesting. There's been history about Shelbourne, uh, Shamrock Rovers, Bohemians. They've all written different books uh, about them. Uh, and St. Pat's haven't had their own history book written to date. So uh, I thought it was about time we had our own one. Uh, we were, the Dublin club had out one, I suppose. Finn Harps and Dundalk and other clubs have had histories written of them. Um, and look, Pat's is a, a fantastic club, one of the most successful clubs in Irish football. It was crazy we didn't have our own history written. And we have something now. This book covers the, the period of the club up till the 1960s. Uh, and writing about the foundation, the formation of the club and their entry to the League of Ireland. Uh, I think it's an interesting football story. I think it's an interesting sports story in general. But for Pat's people, it was very important we got something down on paper. Brian, I don't want to be revealing ages or anything, but you went to your first Pat's game in 1962. I did, yeah. I, I'm kind of surprised I didn't go before that. But yeah. um, given that I was living not too far away and um, I was going to school across the road from the ground at the back of St Michael's Church is now uh, the Richmond Richmond Museum Richmond Barracks Museum but at that time it was um, it was our school which was in the middle of the old Kyo Square which was originally part of the Richmond Barracks and it was a very historical site and uh, and now there's been a brilliant job done on it in, in renewing it and um, attaching all its historic past to the to the buildings that remain there from the school that I went to, primary school, St Michael's, CBS as it was. And um, so, yeah, my, it was my first game and, and a couple of lads who live in the road, um, Brendan Carl and Noel Ryan, who actually was a, a schoolboy and, and youth international for Ireland. He was a very, very good player, played for a team called Rialto, who I mentioned in the book a couple of times. But um, they brought me down to Richmond Park to see Pats for the first time. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a great day if you followed Pats. Um, they were at, at that time, they, 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 they were they'd obviously been ferociously successful in the, the, the initial period when they came into the league and before that, which I'm sure Dermot will talk about. But at the time I went, they had won the cup for the first time and uh, I started the second time, but I, I hadn't seen that. Uh, it was in it was in the following season and they lost 8-2 the day I went. But it didn't... Uh, 
there was something uh, about it. I think as, as most people that go to their first game of football at a decent level, whether it's here or whether it's England, Scotland or wherever they go, you kind of nearly always remember that first day and the initial experience of being among passionate people and adults who, who lose their head compared to their normal everyday lives and there's something the fascination at that time for me was the fascination being so close to the pitch and that green sword such as it was it would have been a fair bit of muck on it as well but being really close it was a wooden fence around the pitch in 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 uh, at that time which does even description the book the the book the the, the uh, responsibility for for um someone from one of the groundsmen to actually build the fence but i i was standing at the fence over on the Camac side and it just was it was brilliant it was a fantastic Cork Celtic team down the the got five goals they won a two but I just it was, it was something I'll, I'll never forget it I'll never forget the the it seemed like there was a vast crowd at the time but certainly a very passionate crowd who weren't put off themselves neither neither was I but neither were they in terms of going to see Pats and uh, that was the start of of my of my of my love for the club and uh, my my going to Richmond Park, which obviously as I do go there and I go to plenty of other grounds as well to games, but that was my first league of Ireland game, and uh, I'm still going to that ground. Was your dad Frankie a fan? No, my dad. Interesting enough, I think my dad played football. He was part of his. My grandfather would have been British Army, and they would have been in the various colonies around the world. My dad was brought up in, in the Egypt and India and various other places, and in army barracks in the south of England and all the shot. He was in the Isle of Wight, and then he was in Armagh, and they lived in Belfast. And I think he played a lot of sports in school, but I don't think I don't I I never saw him actually kicking the ball. Um, um, but I think he had a, a general interest in sport. He played hockey at a very high level. He played for Leinster, played for Three Rock Rovers, played for Leinster, and obviously bo- boxing was his, his main sport. But he, I never, he never was at a Pats match, um, to the best of my knowledge. Um, he only ever came to see a match. I think when I was playing as a kid, he used to sneak in sometimes up to Pierce Park and watch me when I was playing under 12 and uh, under 13, which is the lowest age group at that time. And he'd hide behind the trees, watch me. Uh, we'd have it, you know, late in the season when there'd be a midweek match. That was the only time he would see me because it, by the time I was playing Sunday football under 15, he, he had passed away. So he, um, So I don't know how... Intense as his interest in football was, or otherwise, never. I did talk to him about football, some fascinating stuff and the information that he, he told me. The most it's a long story, but the quick version of it was I said to him, I was reading a book one day and I saw a scoreline of Northern Ireland beat Wales 7 nothing, and a fella Jay Bambrick scored the six goals. I said to me, Dad, imagine a fella scored six goals in an international match. And he said to me, I made the ball for that match. And we left her at that. But since then, Michael Walker followed of the, the very Irish Times. Yeah, yeah, followed up the story, and it, it's true. My dad did make the ball for the match. It was uh, the match was in uh, Belfast Celtics ground. My dad was walking in a shop called the Athletic Stores, which wasn't far away. But he actually made two balls and walked around to the ground with the two balls because Michael traced the the program for the match, and there was a, a thank you to the Athletic Stores for sponsoring the match ball 
So there you go. So he had an interest in football. Is now there. He was handy enough that he could make the ball for an international match. And the ball is actually in the museum, Manchester Football Museum. Wow. The Joe, the 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 because Joe Bambry moved to, I think, to Arsenal or Manchester City after. I don't know how the ball ended up there, but I presume his family stayed there. And but uh, so Michael describes it in another book called Green Shoots. We're talking about the same. Uh, he describes that story of my dad walking around having made the ball to the ground with the ball. So that look, John, we better talk about this yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a Saints Rise and Dermot Looney. Um, what I was fascinated about was look where Pat's is. It's in Chicor in Dublin. It's quite near the Liffey, right on the south side, and. Guinness was a big employer, uh, obviously, at the time. And this club was set up by young railway workers. Yeah, that's right. So the, the, it was called the Great Southern and Western Railway and later on just the Great Southern Railway. It's now the CAE Works in, in Inchicore. Came in the 1840s and brought with it a lot of industry and a lot of jobs to Inchicore. Uh, and also brought with it a lot of people from England and Scotland. So as well as that, the other major employer in Inchicore uh, was uh, Richmond Barracks, which was the British Army Barracks. So between all of those people who had gathered in this little tiny suburb, which then grew to be a very big one, uh, there was a need for entertainment, there was a need for, for sport, and the most popular sport was was association football. There was Gaelic games played there, and in fact Gaelic games were played First at Richmond one. Park. Yeah, yeah, Richmond Park would have hosted a team called St. Patrick's GA Club, who had previously been based, if people know the area, in a, a place called Tyrconnell Park, and that's where the second All-Ireland uh, finals took place in Inchicore, uh, in both football and hurling. But soccer was the big sport of, of the people of Inchicore, um, and the railway workers uh, formed a team in the 1890s called St. Patrick's, and our own team, which, which formed in 1929, um, were kind of a dedication, I suppose, to those. And in the end, a lot of the people involved in the original team got involved in the, the 1929 St. Patrick's Athletic. The, the 1929 story is a group of kids, basically 16 and 17-year-old lads who played a bit of football on their lunch break. They were apprentices primarily in that, that CIE or that GSR works as it was then. Uh, they wanted to get a team going. Um, it was very difficult in those days. Brian is talking about in his own days about under 13 was the, the start of organised football. In these days, it was probably under 17 or under 18. And there wasn't a lot of... It was very difficult for, for lads to get a team together. So they asked the GSR Railway Works, could they get a, a youth team or a youth section? GSR had their own football team. And the GSR met and said no to them. So like all good St. Pat stories, they went down to McDowell's pub, uh, the Richmond House on Emmett Road, and they agreed to form their own club. They wanted to call it St. Patrick's, in tribute to the previous teams that had been called that in the area. They went in to register it, and they were told, you better add something on, there's been too many St. Patrick's teams. So they added on the Athletic, and they started playing competitively in 1930-31 season in Phoenix Park. That's where they started. So they started right at the bottom rung uh, of football. Football was very established in Ireland by 1930. Bowls were 40 years old at this stage. The League of Ireland was on the go. You had Shamrock Rovers, Shelburne, Drumcondra, these established sides. So Pats at the start of the very bottom rung of that with their 17 and 16-year-old apprentices playing up in the Phoenix Park. Uh, but they climbed the, the ranks very quickly indeed through the 30s and 40s to become a very kind of dominant force outside the League of Ireland and they had to be let in uh, by the time that the 1950s came around. And it was such a tumult in Ireland. We had the War of Independence, we had the Civil War, we had the Free State formed, a lot going on. 
Yeah, there was, and Inchicore played, uh, you know, a, a huge role in that. So the lockout in 1913, the, some of the worst clashes of the lockout were on Emmet Road, right where Richmond Park is. Uh, the the War of Independence. There were trains built in Inchicore to, you know, be involved in in, in that and, and indeed in the Civil War. Um, World War One would have seen a huge amount of people from Inchicore going over and fighting. And indeed, there are stories in the book here of the, the great Timber Cummins, one of the greatest Pats players of, the, of this era. His own father had fought in World War One, so people from the estates like the Ranch and the, the CAA Works Estate would have fought in that. Inchicore was at the heart of a huge amount of what was going on in Dublin. But throughout all that time, football and sport were played, and, and, and it wasn't just football, it was things like boxing, there was rowing, there were, it was athletics, it was a big sport in the area. Um, but soccer was, I suppose, the biggest sport. It was the easiest one to play on the little streets and on the fields that, that were adjacent, and people wanted to... People also saw it as a form of entertainment and you know it is hard for us to think now, nowadays of a world without TVs and, and so on but like it was the, the place where people went on a, on a Sunday primarily to watch uh, matches it was the big entertainment so even when Pats were just a junior club playing in you know the equivalent of the, the lower reaches of the Leinster Senior League now they were playing games in front of four and 5,000 people uh, up, in, up in Lucan for example in, in the countryside as it was then there was a match against Spa Rovers in the FAI Junior Cup fifth round and there were 4,000 people at the game. I, I talk about it in the book. So this was even junior football or lower-ranked kind of association football was featuring in the Sunday Independent every Sunday. There were reports when Pats played in the Intermediate League in the Phoenix Park, and it's basically like an under-18s league uh, at a very low level. There are reports in the Sunday Independent. Good, extensive match reports on those games. People were interested. There wasn't as much entertainment. But I think that led to a great pride in the community of Inchicore and the area around it in this, in this team that had formed uh, which started winning and started really achieving for that community. Um, so yeah, Inchicore is a place of great history and uh, Pats are a little bit of that history and we're glad to have been able to put it down in, into paper now. Brian, what did your parents or your grandparents, if you knew them at the time, t- tell you about what Ireland was like back then? Well, um, I think there was reluctance um, right. on, on their part to talk about too much because the, their their upbringing was, you know, my father was was had travelled a lot, travelled, as I mentioned earlier, around the colonies because his, his father was a high-ranking officer in the army. Uh, my mother worked in short, short factories in Belfast. I don't think either of them were very, well, they loved their own community and were very happy among their own mix I don't think they were very happy about the overall attitudes and the dissension and the turmoil and tension that there was between the 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 the, the, the two sides really. And I, I, growing up, I got a sense that, that they were never interested in that type of thing, and there was relief about them coming to Dublin to get away from it. And to the to the. To, to be honest, both of them were very reluctant to go back, even though you know we had family there, and I was sent to Belfast uh, as a as a child. We holidays, and I enjoyed it and played football in the in the lanes and Ardoyne at the backs of the backs of the houses. Um, it, uh, I loved that, I loved that relationship I had. But my my dad was very reluctant to go. So you know, we heard a lot. I heard a lot about you know the war years in Dublin, but they were relatively comfortable compared to what. The people were suffering in other parts of of the British Empire, let's say, and uh, but they used it. There was benefits as well. I think in the, in that my dad, one of the things he 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 did apart from apart from his interest in life of being uh, um, uh, making footballs and and tennis rackets. That was another skill he had, and he was later he was a tailor. But he needed for the tennis rackets. He needed the 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 cut the, 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 the cut the. Um, 
the record stringing material, yeah. right? And he was able to source that through Belfast and seemed to be very scarce in, in Dublin. And there were visits from my my older uh, members of my family, my siblings, to go to the Belfast to pick it up and bring it back down because my dad used to get paid. But uh, we didn't hear, I didn't hear so much about, you know, the, the I, I, I think there was a, there was a, an upset really, I'd say, or a, uh, frustration at the at the madness of the conflict. I'd say that's because yeah. my dad was uh, very very open and very um, you know the house was always there was always people staying in the house from a very diverse background. I have to say in Drimna, uh, maybe because he he worked as a as boxing coach in Trinity College and he, he he liked that that idea that people needed somewhere to stay, that the house would be open for them to stay. They could call into him and he'd send go up and see your mother up and Drimna. But as regards social commentary of what that historical time that Dermot has delved into, so I mean the book fascinated me. Like I thought, I knew a lot about St Patrick's Athletic. Were you surprised by things then in the book? I was absolutely surprised by loads of it. I mean, the depth of information, the, the depth that Dermot discovered in terms of the historical information, the social commentary, some of the stuff he's mentioned about... Archbishop that. McQuaid and all this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, but, but people, got players going away and been missing uh, to go to the war and they've been short yeah. of players and not having enough for, for matches and losing matches but they weren't losing. But, but no, the, 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 the match reports didn't explain why the players were missing, but Dermot found out why they were missing. But also simple things like the ads in the papers telling the players to meet outside the Black Lion at two o'clock for a three o'clock match in the 15 acres and then my next question is so why was the manager of the team what time did the players arrive at for the three o'clock match and how did they get there was it horse and cart or was it bicycles from the, but the, it also it confirmed to me the importance of the of the public houses for 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 St. Patrick's Athletic history as it is for many many clubs in Irish football the, which to this day has been maintained McDowell's well McDowell's on the black line but lots of the horse and jockey and Tavies and lots of other pubs uh, around in Chicago. Now the Saints uh, that's been opened up recently has St. Pat's Club as well took on all the pubs around uh, around the, the Patriots all the, the pubs in the back the, up, up, around up the, the, Royal Ranch, yeah. the Royal all those pubs have always been important in the history of the club but Dermot lays that out particularly well in explaining the importance of the owners of the pubs in terms of their direct involvement yeah. in, in the club uh, Mr. McDowell Joe McDowell himself and and, you know, uh, while not only there was probably some benefits to them in terms of people going, and which is to this day still the case, going before and after the match of people, but they were also big contributors to the well-being of the club and the the sustaining of the of the of the life of the club because there were times when it looked like the club was going to go under, and right. it was often the publicans who d- who dug deep to ensure that that yeah. didn't happen. So it, it's just the book, John. Uh, I, I mean. Obviously, as a sympathetic athletic supporter, uh, been lucky enough to have been the manager for ten years. I I love the book, but I've loved I've loved the book because it's not in my time at all. It 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 it's it starts when I start going. It's yes, kind of yeah. like Dermot said. I think it's over now. Once he start going to match, that's a different time altogether. And and, and kind of sadly, my point of view, it finishes there, right? But I've learned so much about. The importance of the club and that journey from the start up around the walks and in Chicago, which I know well, and the ranch and 
um, all the various grounds they played in. That fascinated me. And the time in Chapel, this is probably fascinates me because it's not too far away from where I lived. And yet I was never at a match in Chapel, Chapel, Lizard. And yet Pat's won the league there twice. twice yeah. and, and, and the descriptions that he records in the book of the matches and the building of the stands and the, the fact that some matches weren't played, they weren't allowed to play there because the crowds were too big and they had to play in Daily Mount. It's fascinating stuff. The problems of the river coming in on the pitch and the pitch being unplayable. But the efforts that were made to get the pitch playable and, the, you know, the, you refer to a picture of D- Dini Lowry uh, stuck in the mud, the goalkeeper, St. Pat's goalkeeper, that the independent match report, they showed a picture of him stuck in the mud b- because the, the river used to flood. It was so close, that pitch, to the to the river. So just in behind the church in Chapel Hill, so that sort of stuff fascinated me. There's so many bits of it, I mean, the detail about the, yeah. the various star players. It's just fascinating yeah. stuff. So interesting about the book is that uh, Dermot, Pat's almost, they were so successful that they couldn't but be admitted to the League of Ireland. So from 1929, their formation, they, they went up to the Leinster Senior League. And then in 1948, they win what the FAI Intermediate Cup. They win the Leinster Senior League. They reached an FAI Cup semi-final at a senior level. It's almost that they couldn't be refused from the League of Ireland to be admitted to it. But they were three times. They were refused yeah. three times. Um, uh, the League of Ireland is, itself is interesting. During the war, it dropped down to eight teams. So they were fed up of playing each other. They really needed to get back up to more teams. The reason for that was travel um, costs and also transport was restricted around the country. So the League of Ireland itself started admitting teams in, in the late 40s. Um, but Pats, because I suppose it was felt maybe they were a bit of a flash in the pan, they didn't get admitted when they started applying. A team called Transport were admitted before them. Slugger Rovers, who had previously been in, were, were readmitted. Um, but Pats won four Leinster Senior League titles. You know, no first division in the League of Ireland in those days. Leinster Senior League was the big league outside of the, the, the League of Ireland. So they won four titles in a row. They won uh, the Leinster Senior Cup, which was a serious tournament in those days. Um, they beat League of Ireland opposition on the way. They beat Bowles and, and Shelburne uh, the season they won that. They were beating League of Ireland teams in the FAI Cup as well. So I, I do say in the book they had to be admitted at the fourth time of asking. But my, my sense is that the Dublin clubs were also quite fearful of them. They knew this was a big club coming in. Uh, Dublin football and Dublin soccer was interesting in those days in the sense that people went to the biggest match. Uh, they weren't necessarily, yes, there were Pats and Bowes and Shamrock Rovers fans, but also there was a whole heap of people in Dublin who would just go to the biggest game that was on that week. Um, and I think the Dublin clubs did feel threatened by, by St. Pats and, and Drumcondra, which is a team that had since fallen out of the League of Ireland. Um, they were particularly threatened and so they would have spoke up against them at various meetings. And it was the league clubs who got to decide who joined and so on. It's interesting you say that the, the longevity and the stability and the durability of Pats because Cork Athletic went under, Cork Aberdeens went under, even recently Dublin City in the last yeah. few years, remember them. And there's no reason why they were afraid because in the first season, this is remarkable, they won the League of Ireland in their first season, 1951-52. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a feat that is maybe understood by, by the Irish kind of football public in terms of its significance. So a team has come from non-league football uh, into league football for the first time. It's an established league. It's on the go 30 years at this stage. And they, they not only compete well in the league in the first season, they win it. I've looked around kind of Europe and, and other places. I don't think there's many examples of that. There have been teams have come from a second division of a league, but never from outside the league. And they didn't do it by being Galacticos and having lots of money. They did it by having a very solid team. They experimented that season with all sorts of players in different positions. And they had huge support. And Pats that season had to play in Milltown in Glenmalure Park, the home of Shamrock Rovers. 
Um, so they did it away from home, which is all the more remarkable. Um, but they did it with huge support of people from Inchicore going over to Milltown on their bikes down the canal um, and big crowds at matches and, and travelling by, by, by train, particularly to away games. Um, I suppose in those days it is important to note that the FAI Cup was viewed probably even more significantly uh, than the League of Ireland Championship. I think that has changed a little bit since. But to win their league, the, the league in their first attempt is extraordinary. It is historic. And they did it again in, in the 50s two more times, uh, as well as winning two FAI Cups. So for a team to come from outside the league and dominate, be part of the dominance of Irish football in the 50s, is a brilliant achievement. And, and we, you know, it hasn't really been written about much of read plenty of history books about Irish football. Pats is kind of a bit of a footnote. They talk about Drumcondra and they talk about Shamrock Rovers and rightly they talk about those clubs. But Pats were as successful, if not more, more successful than those in that golden era when you had attendances of 20,000 at some games. That's a real golden era of Irish football. Pats were at the heart of it. When you do your research, there's a lot of uh, research obviously done and great research, uh, Dermot. It was mainly the Evening Herald and Sunday Independent that covered the, the league. Yeah, well, the League of Ireland was covered very extensively in every paper. Right. Yeah, so the, the junior leagues were covered in the Evening Herald. You know, as was the case up till very recently, it was a Tuesday in the Evening Herald. Um, the Leinster Senior Leagues, which are kind of intermediate leagues, were covered in, in all of the papers to some extent. And the League of Ireland got huge coverage in the 50s in the likes of the Irish Press, the Irish Independent. The Times, not so much, but uh, certainly the Evening Herald, the, the Cork Examiner was had huge League of Ireland coverage in it. All of the local kind of papers, which are out maybe once or twice a week, extensively covered it. We think of the League of Ireland as something that's maybe not so successful and doesn't get great column inches and we, we still have complaints from fans nowadays. Historically it was very well covered and, and the journalists were very well involved and knew what was going on in terms of transfers and knew what was going on in terms of plans for the league and so on. Um, there was always an interest in English football but it wasn't maybe as dominant as, as it later became in terms of newspaper column inches. We got Dermot Looney, uh, the author of Saints Rising on the early history of St. Pat's and the former Pat's and Ireland manager Brian Kerr with us until five. You want to ask a question, you can on 53106, our text number for cost of 30 cents. We'll talk about some of the characters, some of the brilliant players from Pat's in that era after this break. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk for your Sunday afternoon. John Duggan sitting in for Jumbo Line until seven. We're continuing our chat with the former Republic of Ireland and St. Patrick's athletic manager Brian Kerr and the author Dermot Looney, who's written a book called Saints Rising about the early history of the club St. Pat's. And the characters, the players, uh, Dermot, I'm kind of thinking of some names I've just picked out from reading the book. Shay Gibbons, Tommy Dunn, Dinny Larry, Ronnie Whelan Sr. Yeah, and all four of them Irish internationals. Again, not names that might be as well known as some of the other kind of uh, historical stars of Irish football but they're all very significant people not just in the history of Pats but in, in, in an Irish football sense Shea Gibbons was a centre forward um, who is still uh, in 2023 a record goal scorer all those years ago played for Pats joined them uh, just as they were about to enter the League of Ireland in 1951 uh, and left them later on in the 50s um, but a bustling centre forward great in the air um, and scored, I think, 108 league goals, but was scoring kind of 26 goals in a 22-game season, stuff like that, stuff that's pretty much unheard of nowadays. One scored six in a game for Pats and scored five in a league game uh, in Chapel Izzard. Um, and just a, a great forward. He, he was promoted to the Republic of Ireland side and played four times for Ireland, um, played in that famous game against Yugoslavia. You mentioned Archbishop McQuaid earlier. This was a time where... Dublin and, and Irish people were told not to go to the game by, by the Catholic Archbishop, but they kind of ignored him and went anyway. Uh, so Shea Gibbons, great Pat centre forward. Tommy Dunn, the captain who lifted two cups for St. Pat's. 
uh, again an Irish international, uh, a wing back in those days, uh, primarily. Uh, Ronnie Whelan Senior, uh, father of the, the probably more famous son, but Ronnie Whelan Senior in his own right, a great lanky kind of centre forward, uh, really important player for Pats in the 60s and again played for Ireland. Um, these are big, big important names. Dinny Lowry was a goalkeeper. You would have seen Dinny Brian play many of the time, I'm sure. Yeah, well, Dinny and Ronnie Whelan were two of my heroes, along with probably Ginger O'Rourke was my other favourite. He was a forward, centre forward as well for Pats. But um, I would have <coughs> seen um, a lot of Ronnie, Ronnie Whelan, uh, and he was like his son, very elegant player, more of an inside forward than I just said on the centre forward, but maybe then I, my judgement on positions wasn't as good, but I loved Ronnie, his style and his ability. And uh, <clears throat> I got to know a good bit later on, he, was, he used to run scuba teams up in Home Farm, and I was in Home Farm for a couple of seasons with Mick Lawler, and a brilliant man. Dinny was one of my uh, one of my heroes and favourites, great goalkeeper for about twenty years for Pats and then had a good time at, at Bowes and Sligo after he's still alive. Uh, interestingly, um the night of the launch, some of his family were were there at the launch and they were just so delighted that his name was in the book. And that's the thing about the book, John, apart from those four characters, there's so many people anyone who has ever taught someone in their family played for Pats or were on the committee or were part of anything to do with it their name is in this book that's the detail of the research he's done he's named his name the committees every season the players the squad who scored many goals they scored it's just an extraordinary source of information but on those four individuals one of the one of the best days ever I had with Pats we, we, we won the league in 1990 uh, you know which uh, for a personal level was, a, was something of great pride for, for me having been a fan never saw them win an anything and to become the manager of the team we won the league but we, we played the last match of the league we played Bowers and we'd already won the league and uh, Paddo Callaghan, who was um, a great friend of Dermot's and would have done a great amount of research and historical gathering of information and interviews, Paddo Callaghan that day, I think he organised a collection of the newspaper reports from the last season they'd won the league in 55-56 and the club had invited all the squad, the players, out on the pitch at half-time. I wasn't aware of it. I'm in the dressing room doing the team talk at half-time. <laughs> I don't know this is going on. They're out in the middle of picture a hardless cross being introduced to the crowd and then after the match in all you know our own joy we drew the match that day it didn't matter Some again somebody probably the, the secretary at the time Frank Boyle and great secretary said look by the way all the lads that won the league in 1956 are around in the Greyhound would you go in and see them well I went around I met these men and so as I said some of them were my heroes I knew about Shay Givens and Longo White and Tim Burkham all these different personalities Dinny Willie Pell they're all there and I'm going my god Tommy Dawn and, and Ginger Rook and they're telling me what this means to them the Pats ah, have now won the league ah, no but they're telling me what this know, means know, to yeah, them know, yeah, yeah. having been Pats players but they were just lovely people they were all although they went and he mentioned they went and played for other clubs after some of them did maybe not for too long I mean Shea Gibbons I think famously went to Hollyhead Town for he think he doubled his wages to go to Hollyhead but he didn't last too long I think they had to play in Stephen's Day and that might have been the final uh, the final nail <laughs> the coffin of the idea of going to Hollyhead every week to play but they saw themselves as St. Patrick's athletic people that was their club that's where they had so much success in life and they were waiting on this 
thing to happen again. So they were great, lovely people. I, I couldn't believe the emotional attachment that they still had with that club and that idea of, you know, the club that rose from from the railway works in Chicago and going through it in, what was the time period from the start? 29 to 51 to win the yeah, league. Yeah, it was based, based just over 20 years. Yeah. period. They went yeah. from the lowest levels of football to, to the top. Yeah, 1951, 55, 56, they won the league until you then won it in 1990, Brian. And then FAI Cups in 1959, 1961 until 2014. Uh, it's interesting, uh, Dermot, that for those league wins it was Milltown it was Chapel Lizard, it was Dediman Park and when Brian was there it was Harold's Cross so Richmond Park didn't get us go but it did for that second FAI Cup by the time they'd won that in 61 they were there back at their home They were and Brian brought the league to Richmond Park in 95-96 so uh, that's when I, I was only starting to follow the club at that stage um, Richmond is a very important uh, place obviously for Pat's people but it's a great ground I think anyone who goes to football in Dublin will, will notice the, this ground nestled in behind the red brick houses in Inchicore Terry Venables played for Pats for a brief time in the 70s there were no floodlights then how long? he only played two or three games it's disputed to be played for two or three Pats had a manager Barry Bridges at the time who I saw over. I was at those matches you were at the game was he any use? Uh, Venables would have been good right? Venables was a great player I was, and he was a great character he became a brilliant brilliant man probably one of the best managers England ever had um, but the idea of him playing the Pats I mean he was he was probably past the sell-by date a bit but he was a hell of a player Barry Bridges used to bring in some exotic signings at that time because Ven- it, Venables couldn't find the, the ground he arrived early for the game and there were no floodlights then so he had to knock on all the doors on Emmett Road eventually they told him it's in behind us uh, Gordon Banks also played in that era as well that famous game against Shamrock Rovers pulled off what people have described as the best save ever in the League of Ireland from Eamon Dunphy um, but Richmond is, is, is a special place and to be able to bring the, to, to be able to get the club back to Richmond uh, at the end of this period you're talking about in, in, in the late 50s was so important for the people of Inchicore then, of course, in the 90s, to, to get the club back to Richmond was so important. Um, I think Pats would be lost if we weren't back in Richmond. It would be a big uh, blow for the, for, for the club. So, look, that, the current ground needs a bit of TLC, but uh, they will move on, I think. 53106. Hey, guys, a question for Dermot Looney. Where did the red and white colours of Pats originate from? Were they ever using any other colours in the early years from Dave Fagan and Navin? It's a great question. Um, so Pats did wear red and white in the 30s. Uh, and again, we've no colour pictures from the time, but it says it in, in some of the LFA documents from the time. But later on in the, in the 40s, Pats actually, for at least one season, wore, uh, which strikes me as being very unusual, uh, white shorts with a green shamrock and blue shorts, but much more like Shamrock Rovers colours. I've no pictures of it, but a couple of players have talked about it. Went back to the red and white. And w- there was a, a great Pats player who went on to be an Irish international, Joe Haverty, went to Arsenal in the 50s and one part of the deal was Arsenal sent over the red and white gear for Pats to wear the next season 53106 I've got Dermot to thank for introducing me to St Pats in 1995-96 I'm an old school friend of Dermot his passion for the club is unrivaled I've recently read his book which is excellent it's a must read not just for Pats fans but for all football fans congrats Dermot from Aidan a nice text there on 53106 um, Brian when you started going on games and for maybe the first couple of decades was it the golden age of the League of Ireland was it what was it? What was it like when you began to start following uh, Pats? Well, well I, I'm not sure. I, th- I think the current era is, is a bit of a golden age for League of Ireland because the crowds have returned yeah. almost sensationally in re- in since COVID. Uh, COVID prevented people going to games. Only the, the elite were allowed in, but. Um, since then, for I think for various reasons, I think the clubs individually have have 
connected with their communities and there's a kind of a, it seems almost like it's a cult among younger supporters now to go to games and there's a you know, great mixture of people, there's a lot of you know, younger people, young girls going, young boys going there's a lot of uh, people with, with not non-Irish accents I find going to the games now people who have come to live and work in Ireland, some people just, I remember one particular game this season there was uh, 16 fellas from Stuttgart in McDowell's before the match right. and they come to Dublin for the weekend but there's a lot of that going on where I think the the, the, the communities have reconnected the clubs have reconnected with the, with their communities and vice versa and there's a there's a bit of a buzz about it but that period of time when I started going as a kid the crowds certainly there was big crowds again but there was other crowds as Dermot mentioned days that there wasn't big crowds if there was one big game on there could be a massive crowd at that not so many at the other but there were bigger crowds then it was changing in the 60s because Match of Day had started on, on BBC and then the ITV eventually and there was live matches on the telly and the, 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 it, the crowds and other things began to the, to, to, to take away there was much more cinema there was much more general entertainment around for people to go there was all sorts of things happening there was ice rinks there was all sorts going on. and a lot of other sports were, were taking a, a higher profile as well and Dermot mentioned that soccer had such a prominence in the papers with, with the GA games but there would have been much, much less I'd say rugby in those days in the papers and yeah, a well, lot of other sports that have, have a good profile now and, 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 and sports so. that are no longer around really so speed Speedway, for example, was very big for a brief time in Dublin in the 50s. And in fact, there's predictions that it's going to overtake soccer as the sport of the working class. And Passport playing in, Passport playing Lizard, in the Speedway it, Stadium. Speedway yeah. in Chapel Lizard. That was what the ground was built for. Uh, it was a Greyhound Stadium and a Speedway Stadium primarily. And Pats, that's where Pats won two leagues. Uh, I, you know, with, with a lot of talk of the wings uh, where, you know, the, the sods had only just been laid over the, the Speedway track. Um, but it is interesting. There's a bandwagon effect, definitely. Um, it was a big, you know, the golden era of the League of Ireland. People talk about the 50s. But Pat's record win, which is still the record win, was against Dundalk in Chapel Izzard in, uh, around that time, 1955. They won 10-3 in the match. Um, but there were only about 100 people at the game. And the reason why is because about two miles away in Daly Mount Park, there were 20,000 watching a more prominent game. I can't remember who was playing in that. I think it was Drum Condra and someone else. Um, so there was a real bandwagon effect. It wasn't necessarily that clubs had huge... Uh, direct fan bases or, or kind of core fan bases people just wanted to go for entertainment to a game on a, on a, on a Sunday afternoon But I do think John that now is is it, it honestly yes. a bit of a goal now, I'm not saying that it's not like we've got a team that's going to win the European Cup or Shamrock Rovers played Manchester United in the 50s and gave them a run for it it's not not that era but just in terms of the the interest around the game in terms of people wanting to go and see the teams because a lot of young players playing a lot of quality pitches are better the style of football is better there's a bit of excitement around it. I think a lot of the Friday night football or Saturday night as it happens in some of the country ventures like I used to play a lot of Saturday it, it, it suits people and it's a night's entertainment if they can throw in a little bit of going to some of the local losseries before and getting food or drink or whatever it, it's 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 a night out for people now yeah. but there's I, I, I think it's actually a great time for the league uh, and um, a lot, there's a lot of good football uh, you know Shamrock Rovers have dominated the last few seasons but before that Cork and Dundalk were dominating and maybe the thing will turn again but 
there's all there's always potential for someone to break through to and now that Derry are back are strong again and the Cork are back in the league. I think it was very important the Cork are back in the top division again because you know the second biggest city in the country should have a team. As Limerick should have a team in the top league. But there's so many clubs making such a huge effort to be in the league and be competitive and do things well, both for the players, the staff and the supporters. Uh, and you know, everybody understands the grounds have to improve and we need better facilities and it's taken too long to get to there and you know there's a bit of pressure on the FEI are trying to do something about it but the government and councils in general have got to take responsibility that the football club in the area is a very very important part of the community and that the people deserve uh, facilities in those grounds to be comfortable men and women particularly should be very comfortable families should be comfortable going to those games and the grounds and they deserve investment soccer people who follow soccer who love football have spent as much money in their taxes in their lifetime as any other group of people and that money some of it should go into football stadiums in my view at a local venue not just the big stadiums and Lansdowne Road or Aviva whatever you want to call it uh, that, that that level of stadium the community stadiums all around the country and the great work been done in Derry and Sligo and Galway and everywhere else trying to improve but they need everybody needs help yeah, well said, Brian. And I think social media has helped with the with the game here domestically. But uh, absolutely, you say about the taxpayers' money, absolutely right. The biggest participation sport in the country is soccer. Uh, just on um, today's uh, action, Brian, Brighton 2, Liverpool 1 in the Cup. And he's 14 years of age, playing for Bohemians. Evan Ferguson, how are you? Well, I, I, I spoke with, with, with Stephen Doyle a couple of weeks yes. ago about him after we, we, we covered the match, and uh, you know I mentioned his family history and his, um, uh, you know, there's a great football background through his father and his grandfather, both very good players in the League of Ireland, and he's a very, very steady upbringing but uh, he had the tough game today against Canate he was marking them all nearly man to man but did some very good things in the match Uh, didn't get on the score sheet I didn't see the last half hour I was on my way in here but um, massive potential he's got off to a great start with a few important goals for the club managers trusting him out to start to them in in that game today with Welbeck normally just played one through the middle they played through two up front today with one dropping off Welbeck generally dropping in to to give them a bit of balance in midfield when they hadn't uh, when they lost possession but he's a very well rounded centre forward he's 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 big and strong for his age and it justifies uh, the work that you know schoolboy clubs did before he he went to Bohemians Kevins and uh, what Keith Long did and throwing them into that match where Keith got a bit of criticism for throwing them in I think to Chelsea the friendly match but that was only it was justified by obviously what he was producing the underage teams for for Bowes and what they had seen the training ground that he was physically he would be able for that and he's gone on from there and uh, done consistently well and Brighton he's he's he's, a, he's, had a, he's had a great place we've seen how they've managed the um, young players coming through and giving them the opportunity over the last few years uh, it's such a great seeing at Brighton really when you think 20 years ago they were they were travelling to the White Dean Stadium I think to play matches away well away from Brighton um, in an athletics stadium and they, they they were they were in free fall, you would say. But I mean, look at where they are now. Beautiful stadium, solid in the Premier League. Been in the top ten, I think, the last two seasons. 
and uh, going very well this season, despite the change of manager. Yeah, the the, the form has continued sure. and maybe even improved. What about Liverpool? What about Liverpool? Um, well, it's a time of change, isn't it? Transition is the word that used now in the game, big time. The game lost the ball, and ball and transition, and all that. Liverpool are certainly in transition <laughs> as a they've lost the ball and they're in transition. I think it's very difficult for 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 Klopp because the number of injuries they have to key players in the four positions. They've had a, a constant change, and the Tronfield is in. Uh, Gakpo has been playing centre forward last few games. I. I I think he's a wild player coming in inside, even though he's six foot four. He's never impressed me as a great header of the ball or a dominant pers- player as a centre forward. But he, he's having to juggle about Harvey Elliott playing wide in the left, and he's three other players that can play wide in the left, but it, it, they're not fit. Or Gakpo is playing centre forward. So they've had a lot of problems there. The midfield, the style that they've used that's been so strong, so positive for them over the years since Klopp has come in. They just don't seem to have, as as it said, they don't seem to have the legs now to do that on a consistent basis in that area. And it's it's kind of trial and error at the moment. Even Thiago was never the fella who was the quickest getting around the pitch. Such a lovely footballer. But he's in there in a partnership with, 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 with young players who are probably not quite good enough. They're not quite good enough yet to be to have Liverpool at where they were before but I think they've still got very good players very good squad they're out of the league and they're out of the cup now they're not going to win the league could they scrap and get up to the top four I'm not so sure I think they're too far off it actually and there's too many between them and the top four that are playing reasonably well there's some of them not playing so well the likes of Chelsea and Spurs and not playing particularly well but there's others ahead of them are Brighton are and um, it'll be tough for them to get to get there. So will it be about the Champions League for them this season? It's hard to see them going. But maybe his focus now, well, it's got to be between the, the, making the Champions League again in top four and the Champions League itself. Five three one six. Uh, Carl and Cork and touch. Great show, lads. Thank you, Carl. Brian Carr's a national treasure. And I love listening to him. Big thing for Irish football is to get a wedge of the gambling taxes, says Carl. And Dermot Looney. I was finished this book last night. I was going. Where's the second volume? Is there a second volume coming for the last 60 years? Well, not for me yet, anyway. Um, we'd have to get the lawyers involved, given all the controversies that happen at Pats about winning leagues and leagues being taken away by registration issues and all the rubbish that went on when, pa- when Brian was involved in terms of the financial issues in the in the early 90s and everything else. I don't consider any of that rubbish. <laughs> Every day of heartache was well worth well it. Worth it like well worth well, yeah. well, it. We, you know, when we, we got the dais, the winning dais. But I do think like it's important. What we, have, we have a book now about the early history of Pats and we'll have, uh, hopefully in the future, a book later on. But just for Irish football fans, th- this is a very significant club. You wouldn't have a Paul McGrath uh, in Irish football history if it wasn't for what Charlie Walker did and taking him on as a Pats player when you know Bean, Billy Bean was looking for him to be trialled out in Ireland for a year. Um, uh, you wouldn't have, you know, there's been a whole host, we've mentioned some of the earlier players, but the likes of more modern times like Keith Fahey and so on, uh, who are significant Irish footballers. Um, but also you wouldn't have the, the joy that Pats have given and, and the pride that they've represented their community with. Um, I think it's been really important to get something down on paper to tell those stories. Um, I think it should have been done a long time ago, but anyway, it's done now. Um, and I think it is recognising St. Pats as a very significant force. I say in the book that 
uh, you know, th- most football fans kind of like this kind of long-suffering trope, right? So all we're, we're, you know, such a suffering group of fans. The truth about St. Pat's is they've been actually a very successful football club since they were formed. They've won, you know, in everything, everything in non-league football since they got into the league. This will be their 73rd season in a row in the top flight of Irish football. So only Bohemians have done the same and they've been in a few relegation playoffs. Pats have stayed there at the top and there's a reason we're not doing a, a show today about some of their rivals in 1930 like Nuggets United and Belleville and these teams that have fallen fallen away and even all those League of Ireland teams you spoke about, Drumcondra, the, the four or five core clubs who've fallen aside. Um, Pats have kept going, they've maintained, they've succeeded in those kind of 90 odd years since they were formed and it's good that we can pay tribute to, to the people who were involved and the characters who were involved but look it belongs to, the, to a community of not just Inchy Corps but that south and western part of Dublin uh, who've, who've kept that team and that club going over the years Can you ask Brian if you remember my uncles Paddy and Tony Dipper Byrne who played for Drumcondra in the 1950s they went on to play for Hollyhead great piece on St Pat's I missed uh, Paddy and Dipper. Was it Paddy? Was Dipper or Paddy? Tony Dipper Byrne and Paddy. Uh, no, I, mi- I missed. I, mi- I missed the fifty stuff. I was started <laughs> in the sixties, but I saw it. I actually played for drums uh, the last season. That the, my best mate, or rest of me in work, um, was a drums fan, right? Declan O'Donnell, and he used to always say to me, almost every day we talk about football. He used to say the now defunct drums right <laughs> <laughs> but of course drum Condra started up again and a very successful junior club still going less a senior league but um, that the drums league of Ireland club at that time I actually was on the B team the year they, they, they finished maybe I was part of the demise the fact that I was getting the game in the B team for a while at drums but uh, the home farm bought the, the, the ground bought Talca Park from the Prole family and the, the first year they were in the league, it was Drumcondra Home Farm, and then it was just Home Farm after, and that was the early seventies. But now I missed, I missed the two borns of, of that time. But I, Tui, Liam Tui, used to regale me with stories of Rovers drums matches when various <laughs> drums players used to try and put them over the wall in Talca Park. Bunny Fulham, in particular, later became a great friend of his. But I do remember, I remember drums in there I mean I think they won the league not too not too long uh, bef- not too far back from when they went out of football they'd won the league in the 60s so you know it was sad that Drum Condor went out of football The book is called Saints Rising brilliant job Dermot congratulations Dermot Looney and uh, continued success with it I think this is really important for uh, not only St. Pat's but for every uh, you know League of Ireland club or every sports club to have a history to have a documentation to have that before it's too late really you know so well done thank you for coming in thanks, and Brian John. thanks as always thanks John thanks to Tom Look, again I repeat that anyone who ever says someone in the family was involved in Pat's going back and they don't know the detail they need to get a copy of the book it's 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 a brilliant document and there's lots of funny stories in it for, for, for people who are just general that, that you know they're not deep in the St. Pat's athletic team but they've a love of a lovely stories and a, a social commentary of of its time as well because it's uh, it's it's about community about the difficulties and about life as well not just about the result of the football match Brian Kerr, Dermot Looney, great stuff. Thank you so much for the last hour. Go on the Saints. We're back after the news. Off the ball. Feels like we're in the running already. There's still half a season to go. I'm not sure how long you can maintain that sort of nervous energy, that emotional intensity. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app.